40 days in the time of the resurrection to the ascension 10 days of the ascension then to Pentecost, which begins with Acts chapter 2. For the most part, this, the passage that I'll read for us now, is the one incident that is related to us of this particular interval, besides the praying which goes on at the beginning of it, and its singularity ought be for us a sign of the significance of this passage, at least in terms of how Luke was presenting the book of Acts to us. So let me read for us this portion of the Word of God, beginning at verse 15, and I'll continue through the end of the chapter. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Why not eleven? Lord, we thank you for your word again, and we pray that as we consider it this morning, you would help us to understand, help us to focus, to enter into this world so that we can understand the things that are taking place therein and apply them in ours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will admit that at first glance, it seems unusual to have this passage, this incident, recorded as the one main incident that takes place in this particular interval. Eleven seems like a pretty good number. It's prime number. It's pretty number. Eleven guys on a football team, eleven people on a soccer team. We, we might in, understand the inclusion of this passage into the book of Acts if the man who was chosen, Matthias, did some extraordinary things that were then recorded for us in the book. But in fact, we never hear from him again. This is the only place that we have his name recorded singularly at all, is this particular chapter, this first chapter of the book of Acts. 
So, to grasp why Luke would include this story here, and then for us to try and understand the importance of it, we need to allow ourselves to go into this setting, this situation a little bit with him, and realize that the struggle that lies behind this inclusion is one of betrayal. That's the backdrop that is here. How did betrayal play such a significant role in the events that have taken place? How do you make sense of it? Now, perhaps many of us have experienced some level of personal betrayal. It could have been by uh, a mother or father. It could have been by a spouse or a sibling, a, a close friend. It could have been by a pastor. But when we experience betrayal, it shakes us. It disturbs a core part of us even more so than perhaps death itself by itself. Now, of course, we've got both going on here, the death of Judas, but the betrayal is the issue, and it shakes our sense of trust and understanding of what takes place, and it gives us questions. How did this happen? What are the consequences, and how do we move on? And that's how I'm going to structure this sermon this morning by asking these questions. How in the first place, did this happen? There's trouble in Alabama. Auburn football isn't doing well. And I don't know a lot about college football, but I know that in Alabama they're crazy about football. And you don't have to understand football to understand the analogy that I'm going to make here. So, two weeks ago, yesterday, but two weeks ago, Auburn lost. And in the loss, their quarterback didn't play well at all. And you may have seen some, some lowlights uh, on the news of what Auburn's quarterback did in that game two weeks ago. And when a quarterback doesn't play well, you, in the first place, the, the, you know, the armchair analysts start to comment on, he did this wrong, he did that wrong, and they start articulating it. And then pretty quickly, the discussion moves on to things like the, the, the offensive line. How did they play? Did they provide enough protection for him, enough blocking? How about the running game? Does it exist well enough to give the quarterback a sense that he can throw the ball without a lot of pressure? Does it take some of the pressure off of that? What about the play calling and selection that was used? What about the receivers who were out there catching the ball? Is it their problem? So I listened a couple of, to a couple of interviews about this, and of course it gets back eventually to exactly the place where you would expect it to get back, whether you're talking about a football team or whether you're talking about corporate America or some other organization. It gets back to the coach. And can we really trust the judgment of this coach who thought that guy was a good quarterback? And can we trust the judgment of him now that he says, you know what, I don't like him as a quarterback and I'm going to bring in this freshman and have him quarterback? The questions will be even more this week because they lost yesterday. How could the betrayal of Judas have happened? For us, this is a distant event. And being a distant event, we can look on it in an unemotional kind of way. We can just look at the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. But for them, it's not that. It's painful. It's recent, and it's puzzling to them. So at first, you can imagine, 
it's easy to think about the betrayal of Judas and to blame Judas. In a group, you might begin to say, did we ever notice anything about Judas in particular along the way? And you can imagine reflections going on, like, like reading into statements that he may have made in the past and saying, ah, that was a sign of the things that were to come. But it doesn't take long before in talking about the betrayal of Judas and what he did wrong, before some other questions start getting asked as well. And one of the questions that would have been asked is why didn't any of us see it coming? We were close to him. He was one of us. He was a part of our group. We heard him talk every day. We saw him move about every day. How come none of the apostles recognized this, and why didn't they do anything to stop it? Can you trust the founding leadership of this new church that is being started when, in fact, they failed their Lord from the very outset? They couldn't protect him from one of their own, not to mention that the further those discussions go along, one can imagine that you start reflecting on yourself and on others and going, you know what, as it turns out, none of us in this situation were really paragons of virtue, steadfastness, faithfulness for him. Can I trust you? Can we trust each other to continue this on? Now, you take the question one step back, and you ask this, why didn't the head coach, mind you, the omniscient, omnipotent head coach, why didn't he see what was coming, and why didn't he stop it, if he is in fact the Lord who knows the hearts of everyone? So verse 24, they're going to pray to the Lord who knows the hearts of everyone. Well, if you do, then why didn't you know his heart and stop him from doing what he did or at least avoid the trap that he was setting up? These aren't academic questions. They can sound like it as we look at them from a distance. But these are real questions for a group that is in turmoil, that is struggling with these issues. How can I trust the other guys that are around me? How could I trust them if I'm someone who's thinking about being part of the way of the new covenant community? And how can I trust Jesus if he didn't see it coming? It's the elephant in the room. They have to talk about it. They have to figure out how did this happen and what do we do about it. They've got questions. And the answer that is given by Peter for us in this section, and I want to use now the words that I started last week, the answer is profound, it is paradigmatic, it is repeated throughout the book of Acts, it is corroborated, and it is absolutely essential and will form a theme that repeats itself throughout Acts, verses 16 and 17. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. There's honesty, honesty and integrity in what Peter says. He doesn't try to distance himself or themselves from Judas. He says, the fact of the matter is this. He was one of us, allotted a space, 
numbered with us, counted as one of us, but the heart of the betrayal and the heart of what Peter is saying is that this had to be fulfilled. There was a divine necessity about this betrayal. It was imperative that it take place this way. Why? Because the Scriptures say it. Because the Holy Spirit inspired David to write about these things, and David wrote in advance about what Judas would do at this particular time. It had to take place in exactly this way. It's not surprising. It's not unexpected. It's not the result of bad choices being made. And it's not bad luck. Instead, betrayal is part of the plan of God. And in order to support that, Peter quotes two psalms for us here, Psalm 69 and then Psalm 109. And you see that there in verse 20, which describe the unjust suffering of a king at the hand of the wicked, and then in Psalm 109, a prayer for justice. Peter, think about this for a moment, is doing exactly what he has seen his Lord doing just a few days before, a few weeks before. Now, for us, the book of John is between Luke and Acts, so it, it looks like the space is great. But in Luke 24, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is assuring his apostles that he had to die and rise again in three days. Why? Because the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. It had to take place in exactly this way. So Peter, following the example of his Lord, says, listen, this is what Jesus did. This is now what I am going to do. I'm going to show you how the betrayal had to take place as well, according to the Word of God, according to that which was authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Peter's doing what Jesus told him to do. Jesus says to Peter, listen, you're going to deny me. But when you've turned back, strengthen the brothers. This is the turn back, strengthen the brothers opportunity. This is, if you want to, that's the Luke language of it. If you want to put it in the John 21 language, do you love me, Peter? Yes, then tend my flock, feed my flock, shepherd my sheep. This is Peter taking the Word of God and doing exactly what Jesus, his Lord, has told him to do. This lodging, then, of the betrayal of Judas within the providential plan of God is, of course, as, as we looked at the confession, the Belgic confession today, it's comforting and it's reassuring to know that this wasn't out of control. The disciples, the apostles aren't making the best out of a bad situation that nobody could have foreseen, but, you know, this is what it is, so let's do the best we can. It's comforting, but it begs a question, and the question that it begs is, are there consequences for betrayal? Or is Judas off the hook, given the fact that he was some part of a plan 
that at a minimum, and we know, I'm just being literal here for a moment for the sake of being literal, of a plan that's at least a thousand years old. What's he got to say about it? David was writing about this a thousand years before Judas was ever born. Does he get a free pass as a result? And of course, the answer from this passage is emphatically no. Nothing removes the judgment of the wicked, unbelieving, and unrepentant. Nothing. Now, it is possible for that judgment to be removed, as we saw in Psalm 51. That's why I had us read that today. An incredible sin forgiven by God with genuine repentance. But nothing stops the wicked and unrepentant from being judged. Not the gospel of the kingdom, not the providence of God, and not some, well, this is, this is true, it's not some effort, not even the fact that Satan was involved in what Judas did. Judas is responsible for Judas' sin, and you're responsible for yours. Verse 18, the reward of his wickedness. That's what he got. That's the parenthetical statement that is right here. This isn't part of Peter's speech. This is a comment by Luke to help us understand what's going on. He got the reward of his wickedness. It was his, and he got exactly what he deserved for his wickedness. Verse 25, Judas turned aside. Not Satan made him do it. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And his own place here is, of course, a reference to the same places that you see described in many places, but Isaiah 66 as an example of that. The place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. He went to his own place. So he adds these verses here, 18 and 19, to show us the earthly picture of that which has become the lot of Judas, which was his reward for his wickedness. Now, to harmonize this, in case you have any questions, uh, with the Matthew account, we can apparently say that the, the priests bought this field in Judas' name, and that in some way there was a combination of hanging, perhaps bodily decay that goes on, a, a fall that then resulted in the bowels gushing out in the midst of this field. It's ugly. It's vivid. It's graphic. It's a graphic novel for us in Acts chapter 1, and it should be seen for us as a warning. That's why it's painted this way. That's why you get this kind of detail. Understand the warning that is being presented. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish. Well, what we learn from Judas is there's a kiss of death and a kiss of life. Judas kissed the son, but he betrayed him with a kiss. And there's another kiss that is the kiss of affection, the kiss of loyalty, the kiss of reverence to the Lord and the King. So there are consequences. So what do we do now? How do we continue now that we're playing a man down? 
well, here's where we might be tempted to think, listen, 11 is fine. They got 120 of you in the room. There's plenty of people around. There's 500 to whom he appeared. Just stick with 11 and proceed from there, but it has to be 12. Why? Historically, it has to be 12. There are 12 tribes and 12 sons of Israel. The disciples correspond to this. It is not an accident. There have to be 12 of them. This isn't a suggestion for you that you should have 12 people in your small groups, 12 elders or officers in the church. It's just that there had to be 12 because there were 12 tribes. There's a historical reason. There's also an eschatological reason, a future reason, an end times reason that there have to be 12. Matthew 19, Jesus speaking to and of the apostles, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In the time to come, these apostles who are Israelites, who are Israelites, will sit in judgment over other Israelites. It will be their responsibility to render on behalf of the Lord the justice of the Lord. Or if you want to take it forward to the last page of your Bible, second to last page, a description of the New Jerusalem. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. A couple of verses lower. And the wall on the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's got to be 12. It has to correspond historically and to the future with the 12 tribes. And, and it's got a present reason too, a present mission that is set before them. The job that they have been given as these 12 witnesses is to gather up the house of Israel, to gather up the newly reconstituted household of God and to go out and get the Israelites from wherever they are. From any place to which they have been scattered, these 12 have to go and get them and bring them back to this newly being constructed household of God. They are unique, they are authoritative, and they are empowered for that mission and that mission in particular, and that is why this must take place before Pentecost. The Spirit is going to authorize, deputize, and empower them specifically for this work. There have to be 12 because they are the ones who are chosen to go to Israel in particular and to declare what has taken place and to call Israel back to faith in their God. So, therefore, another must take his office, and it is the one thing that must take place in this interval. As soon as it is done, you will read Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived. This has to take place first. So what are the qualifications for the one who might take this position in terms of how do we continue on? Well, they're given for us in verses 21 and 22. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They've got two intervals they've got to fulfill. They've got to fulfill the interval of the beginning with the baptism of John on up through to the resurrection of Christ, and they've got to be ultimately then witnesses of the ascension of Christ as well. They have to have seen all of that in order to serve in this role. We can say a couple of other things from Acts as well. According to Acts chapter 24, as they pray, they say, Lord, you know the heart of everyone, so there's some level of character slash heart evaluation that they're doing. They want this person to be a person of character, or at least the Lord to point out who is the person with the heart that will be true. And then there is one final qualification that is essential for us to understand. You must be chosen specifically and appointed specifically by Jesus if you are going to be one of the twelve apostles. That is the qualification. It is what Jesus did, of course, in the Gospels. And it is the way they are referred to, for example, in the very beginning of Acts chapter 1. What Jesus did through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It has to be someone that Jesus chose specifically. And we'll come back to that in the prayer here in just a moment. For the mission of serving as a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these are the qualifications. They're specifically enumerated. And in the enumeration of these 12 and these 12 only, amongst others who were certainly qualified for it or had seen much of it, we see the uniqueness of that which has taken place. This office of apostle is foundational, unique, and non-continuing. In the church of Jesus Christ, they are not replaced when they die. One is replaced because he betrayed, and we have to get 12 witnesses. But once the witnesses are established, and once the Spirit of God has so designated the witnesses, if they die, they die, that's it. We don't have replacements for them. The office of apostle is not normative in the church of Jesus Christ. The work and word of the apostles is and it's essential for us to understand that if you want to have any idea of how to apply the book of Acts. Now, of course, you know, it's probably going through your head right now, wait a minute, what about Paul? Well, Paul was uniquely and specifically appointed by Jesus as a ministry to the Gentiles. It's a different ministry than this one that is entrusted particularly to these men at this time. Paul will be an apostle. Barnabas gets lumped in with Paul. And it seems like a couple of guys near Paul get some apostleship. And then this word can be used in a very general sense. I won't go into this in more detail right now. Words can be used to describe a specific office and a general function that people might do or to describe the function in and of itself. So the word itself, one being sent, could be used in many places. But the twelve are the twelve. They are sent to the people of God, to the Israelites, to restore them. We are the apostolic church of Jesus Christ because we are built on the foundation of their work and of their teaching. 
not because we hold the office of apostle, nor does anyone in our body. So how was, in particular, this Matthias then chosen? Well, some of it looks very familiar to us, right? So there's some sort of discussion, consideration, you know, has he been with us for this amount of time that takes place? Prayer is an element of it, and I'm going to, as important as it is, it's one of the things that's repeated over and over. I'm going to be able to come back to that in Acts, so let me move on from the prayer in particular. But the intercession then that takes place is to Jesus in particular, Lord, Lord Jesus, we could add there, because clearly this is talking about Jesus, you who know the hearts of all, would you show us, reveal to us the one whom you have already chosen? Why? Because that's the key to being an apostle. Jesus has to choose you. You've already chosen somebody. Show us which one it is. Make it clear to us which one of these two is chosen by you. Who has that qualification. So that all sounds familiar to us. It all sounds okay to us. We're good up to that point. It makes sense to us. It's similar to some things that we do when we're electing officers, of course, right up to the point where we read, and they cast lots. And we kind of go, what? This seems like a really important decision to chalk up to a throw of the dice. When we hear that they cast lots, and lots probably, we don't know exactly, but Lots was probably writing the two names on two separate stones, shaking them in a cup until one came out, and that was the one that was chosen, or reaching in and pulling out one after they've been shaken up and saying, this is the one that has been chosen. For us, that seems like leaving it up to chance, leaving it up to fate, trusting the luck. For them, it is exactly the opposite. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is of the Lord. So for them, it wasn't trusting to chance. It was, in fact, entrusting this specific decision to the Lord. Get this straight. They couldn't make the final call on this one. And the reason they couldn't make the final call is calling to apostleship comes from Jesus. So what do you do? You've done all the, if you will, mental stuff you can do, the prayer stuff you can do. This to them was how we entrust the decision, recognizing that Jesus is the one who's calling out apostles to serve within the life of the church. So should we continue to cast lots? It was an Old Testament practice. It's got warrant in Proverbs. It's got New Testament example. We've got a couple of elders and deacons who are nominated then the next, they're in internships right now. Within the next few months, they'll come before us. Maybe we should just put their names, shake it up a little bit, and see who pops out. Should we continue to cast lots? And the answer is no. It was appropriate for them in this extraordinary circumstance, and it is never again repeated in the New Testament. The unique Apostolic foundation has been laid. The Spirit has been broadly and widely distributed to the church of Jesus Christ. And we move then to more ordinary means through which Jesus is pleased to lead His church. But the lot falls, in this case, to Matthias. And in so falling, the apostolic numbering is complete. The breach has been plugged, it has been repaired, and the full complement of 12 apostolic witnesses are restored, 
poised and prepared to receive that which has been promised to them and then to do that which they are called to do. O Theophilus, if you are going to live in this household of faith, you want to make sure that the foundations of this household of faith are sure. The betrayal was real. It was real. But it was part of the plan of God that was long before made. Don't be unpassionate about the betrayal. Feel it, but don't be undone by it. The betrayer was, in fact, judged for his wickedness, and Jesus chose his replacement. Now, I want you to consider this as we close. Our distance from these events does not make them any less historic, historical. Their proximity to these events did not make them any more believable. They were not gullible, foolish ancients ready to believe whatever you said. It doesn't matter if I, you, live now or live 2,000 years ago. If you're going to tell me that God became incarnate of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life doing all sorts of miracles, and during that life he gathered to himself a band of 12 disciples in particular, and that one of those 12 then betrayed him according to an ancient plan, he suffered, he died, he was buried, and he rose up again, and he ascended, and this motley crew, this weak-looking, dispersed, scattered group that you're calling the church is in fact the first stages of a glorious kingdom in which he will return and reign over the earth. If you're going to tell me that, you've got some explaining to do. You've got some persuading that you're going to have to do. Because people just don't rise from the dead. And they didn't just rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. It's foolishness. That's what the book of Acts is for us. This is Luke, Peter, John, James, Paul, Stephen. Let me explain it to you. And in explaining to you, let me, let me persuade you of this. Now, the convincing that these men trust in is the convincing of the Word of God and the Spirit of God at work in our hearts. But explaining and persuading is what they are all about through this book. The twelve are chosen. The foundations are in place for a new holy temple in which, in him, you and I are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Let's pray.